This is Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. Today, my guest is philosopher and writer Christopher Preston. He's the author of the book Tenacious Beasts. And I'm excited to bring you our conversation about this book that shares glimmers of hope in the midst of a world shedding biodiversity. Tenacious Beasts explores creature comebacks. In it, Christopher shares how animals such as wolves, bison, and humpback whales have rebounded after their populations have been ravaged. Christopher and I talk about those wildlife stories as well as ecosystems that humans have altered and now need help, including from some of these rebounding animals. Along the way, we dive into some of the big questions surrounding conservation, such as what to do when helping one species means killing another, and how much meddling can humans do before the animals they're helping aren't really wild anymore. We also hear about insights Christopher has collected in reporting from the creatures he features and the indigenous communities that live alongside these animals. This show covers a lot of ground, but there's way more in the book, including fascinating stories of dodging fish semen and necropsying wolf carcasses. Now to our conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today, Christopher, to talk about your book, Tenacious Beasts. Pleasure. So what prompted you to write this book about animal recoveries? personally, but also why did you see a need to share these stories of animal recoveries? Well, I've been teaching environmental topics for 20 years now and feel like I've been on the doom and gloom beat for most of that time. And I think for a lot of people, that beat is getting old. We know the stories. We know that we need to despair in some ways. And so it seemed like if I could provide something else, a little bit of hope, a little bit of a vision, what else? might be out there, what else might be possible. I thought that would be a valuable service. And if you listen to the news, if you listen to the stories, there is some good news out there. Gets buried often, but I thought I could focus on the good news and just provide an alternative to the traditional stories that we hear. And you first introduced us to wolves making a comeback in Europe. Uh, Why was this long awaited and how did people react when wolves arrived? So the wolf restoration and recovery in Europe is really quite amazing because not a single wolf has been deliberately put back on a landscape. Those wolves have made their own way back. They had strongholds in Eastern Europe and in Russia. And strangely, there was a political event that made their recovery possible when the Iron Curtain came down and the military bases started to close down and some of the dictatorships in Eastern Europe started to fall. These wolves were able to make their way out of these closeted areas and start spilling over the former Iron Curtain into Western Europe. The first wolves in Germany made their home on military bases, not actually nature reserves. That's so fascinating. (laughs) They use those military bases as stepping stones, and they're now in every country in continental Europe. And I thought it was worth starting there because I'm a European by birth. I grew up in England. And Europe has twice the people on half the land as the continental United States. And yet they have twice the wolves. And so those statistics are really remarkable. You've got relatively dense wolf populations in Europe compared to the United States. You've got a completely successful recovery, no deliberate reintroductions. And I thought, how is that possible? How are Europeans figuring this out? So that's where I thought I should look first. Yeah. So let's talk about the different components of that recovery. Maybe first the wolves themselves. What are some of the evolutionary advantages that wolves had in making a comeback? Well, it's a slightly different wolf to the wolf in North America, Canis lupus lupus, the Eurasian wolf. 
It's slightly smaller than the ones that we're more familiar with in North America. So the pack size is a little bit smaller. Uh, it's not like in Yellowstone where sometimes you get packs of 20, even 25 of the big packs. Um, pack size in Europe is more like five, maybe six wolves, sometimes four. And they figured out how to live much closer to humans than we perhaps thought was possible. So, for example, there's a wolf pack not far from the end of R the Rome airport. There are wolves on the edge of Milan in Italy. And European wolves turned out not to need big wilderness areas. They could exist on farms in forests and really make their living closer to people than perhaps anybody thought was possible. And so this is a startling fact about wolves. Uh, in North America, at least, we think the wolf is a creature of the wilderness. And Teddy Roosevelt called them beasts of waste and desolation. So we had this vision that they could only exist far away from humans in these big wilderness areas. And in Europe, the story was and still is completely different. It's a different kind of animal. And it's something that perhaps teaches a lesson about cohabitation. Yeah. So so what are those lessons in cohabitation? What have uh what have you seen people learning from wolves? Well it struck me that there's a conceptual mistake with wolves. We picture wolves as occupying or belonging on the far side of a big divide here. Humans occupy the, let's, let's call it the domesticated or the civilized realm, and, and wolves occupy that wild realm out there somewhere, somewhere away from where we live. Well, in fact, that's obviously not true with wolves. If you think about a domestic dog, a domestic dog is a wolf that has just been bred, uh, maybe slightly different genetically now, but originally the same animal. Uh, it took up around people itself. I mean, it decided that was what it wanted for itself. And it befriended humans and became uh, what some people call their best friends. So wolves have 15,000 years ago crossed that divide between the wild and the civilized. And so if we could think about that with a domestic dog, let's extend that a little bit to think about that with the wild wolf. The wild wolf doesn't necessarily belong in that far off wilderness landscape. The wild wolf might belong a little closer to us than we thought. And maybe if we play it right, we can get along a little better than we thought. And we can learn how to cohabit with this species, which a species which really is a fascinating, social, intelligent, uh, sometimes compassionate, often courageous uh, species. In many ways, a species that has a lot of similarities to ourselves. Yeah, and there have definitely been ways that uh, your book shows people um, seeing those admirable qualities in wolves and um, maybe coming alongside of them to help them out, at least, uh, you know, help humans understand their presence. Do you mind saying a bit about wiki wolves and how they helped people adapt to the presence of wolves? No, definitely. One of the things that they figured out in Europe is that if you want wolves to live on landscapes that have plenty of people on them, you've got to put skin in the game. You've got to get involved. You've got to put in money and you've got to put in time and you've got to put in effort. And so WikiWolves was founded essentially to get people from the cities to give up their weekends and to help farmers get ready for the arrival of wolves. And in Germany, where WikiWolves was established, this mainly meant helping farmers put up fences, electric fences, just hardening their 
landscapes against the arrival of wolves. And of course, this serves a very real practical benefit because wolves don't like electric fences, but it also provides a big social benefit because you get the people who are for wolves and the people who are a little hesitant about wolves, you get them in the same place, in the same conversations, meeting each other, knowing who they are, getting to learn about hopes and fears and breaking down some of that political tension an animal like a wolf causes. And so this, these voluntary actions, there's another group in France that got volunteers to sleep up in alpine pastures with domestic livestock in order to let wolves know that there were people around and then keep the livestock a little safer from predation. So you've got urban folk volunteering their time to help out those who are on the front end of, of wolf recovery, because there is a front end here. There is a set of people who are going to bear whatever costs come along. And it's very important that those people aren't hung out to dry uh, and that they have people working with them and they have compensation available to them when they suffer losses. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of leads to an idea that, that I found um, helpful in your book in thinking about wildlife management as people management. Yeah, I mean, there's a ecological character and capacity of a landscape, which is how many animals that landscape can literally hold in terms of food supply and suitable territory for breeding. But then there's also a social caring capacity, and that's how many animals that landscape can hold according to the people who live on it. And the goal is to get that ecological caring capacity as close as possible to the social caring capacity. It's, it's hard to get them to match exactly, uh, especially when you have a controversial animal that does, in the case of the wolf or in the case of a bear, that does cause some depredation of livestock. So it's difficult to get those social and ecological numbers to match exactly. But from the point of view of those advocating for wildlife, you want to get that social caring capacity as high as you possibly can so that the ecosystem can be as natural as it possibly can be. I also appreciated a lot of the explanation of the book around um, what these animals are doing in their ecosystem. So why is it important to have big predators around? What is their importance in ecosystems? Sure. Well, a top predator literally sends a cascade of ecological effects down a system. And it, it does that by predating on the animals immediately below it. And those animals, uh, when they're consumed, uh, that changes their impact on the animals below them. And so this term, a trophic cascade, represents the, the sort of tumbling down from on top of ecological effects. And the classic case of this is the wolf restoration in Yellowstone. And the wolf, uh, when it came back to Yellowstone, caused changes in the movements of the elk and of the deer. So by preying on elk, the wolves changed the vegetation in the riparian areas. By changing the vegetation in the riparian areas, they made those streams more receptive to a wider range uh, of life. Uh, beavers came back, uh, fish habitat improved, and so though you've only introduced one animal with sharp teeth at the top of the food chain, it ends up causing these cascading effects that ripple down through the grazers, the ungulates, uh, down to the riparian areas, 
down to the mammals in the riparian areas, and then eventually the fish and the insects and the birds. And so this top-down trophic cascade has become a measure of ecological health in an ecosystem. So a landscape without predators doesn't benefit from that cascade and generally speaking is impoverished. So it sounds like in reading this book that that you had personal connections to many of the animals that you covered or that you had had been in places, lived in places where they'd been. Um, I'm curious what of those stories motivated you in, in writing this book? So most of the species in this book actually were species that I'd bumped into just through my work. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a, my day job is as a philosophy professor at the University of Montana and also growing up in England. There were a number of species that I'd encountered and I'd sort of seen were around. I'd, I'd seen that some of them were doing perhaps a little better than I had thought. And some of them deserved having their stories being told. One of the places that spent a lot of time when I was in college was Alaska, Prince William Sound originally, and then Southeast Alaska. And the marine life in Southeast Alaska is really just astonishing for this uh, Englishman who hadn't been used to anything other than bunny rabbits and foxes to show up in Prince William Sound and have killer whales uh, moving alongside the boat, humpback whales breaching, sea lions uh, having sea otters, around the boat. I mean, it was just, it was staggering to me. And so that vibrancy, that vitality that a place like Prince William Sound had was a real wake up call for what's possible in a landscape. And so when I heard, in for as far as the book goes, when I heard about the recovery of humpback whales and the recovery of sea otters, I wanted to tell these stories because these stories really meant something to me. And, and they're not stories that people hear a lot about. So Definitely, there was personal experience that fed a lot of these animal recovery stories in the book. Mm, yeah, and we will come back to talking about those marine areas off the coast of Alaska. Um, but your book goes next to an animal that's closer to where you live now, I think, bison. Um, yeah, I knew that the bison in the U.S. Plains had been hunted to oblivion, but I hadn't realized the magnitude of the extermination campaign against them. Why did European settlers want to get rid of bison? So originally there were up to 60 million bison on the Great Plains. The The number is just staggering. If I once calculated, if you stacked all of those bison up one on top of another, you'd have about 5,000 Everests of bison. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> An enormous number of these animals. And I mean, there were multiple reasons why. Um, those animals were exterminated by white settlers. Some of them were commercial reasons. I mean, the bison fur was uh, useful as robes. Um, some of the bison sinews and tendons were used as belts uh, for factory machinery back on the East Coast. Also, the hide uh, can be turned into a belt for factory machinery. Um, there were also reasons that were not commercial uh, and that was to do with the, the desire to settle those Great Plains. The bison were essential to a number of indigenous tribes on that landscape. And there was a bit of a sense that the, the less bison there were, the less indigenous people would be able to survive on the landscape. There is some controversy about how explicit that policy was. Some thinkers think it was literally U.S. government policy to exterminate bison as a means of exterminating the tribes. Uh, 
There are others who doubt that theory. But certainly, as far as uh, making a landscape more suitable for cattle grazing, uh, getting rid of bison served that purpose. And so you had this precipitous drop from about 60 million bison down to a low that was probably somewhere between three and 500 animals around 1900. And so they are almost gone. And really, it is one of the most massive uh, depletions of wildlife in the history of humankind. All this happened in the period from around 1850 to 1900. So in 50 years, a few decades, you've got tens of millions of animals disappearing. And then when there were hardly any left, their bones were pulled off the plains and ground up for fertilizer. So it was really a complete eradication uh, of an animal down to just the last few. So what is the state of bison now and what has their recovery looked like? So the remarkable thing about bison is they can bounce back very quickly. Under the right conditions, a bison herd can increase by 17% a year. And if you think of compound interest, uh, 17% a year, I mean, you'd want to have that on your bank balance if you could. Um, so these animals can come back extremely quickly. The beginning of the return happened not too far from where I'm sitting right now in Montana, actually. Um, a Ponderay Indian called Little Falcon Robe saw that these bison were disappearing off the Great Plains and brought a half dozen from what we call the Rocky Mountain Front, uh, which is Blackfeet territory, from the Rocky Mountain Front uh, over the Rockies into the Flathead Valley. And that was in the 1870s. And that was the first deliberate attempt to protect bison. And those six bison grew into a herd of about seven or 800 bison, which by the turn of the century were outgrowing the available land. And though that land was then on the Flathead Indian Reservation, that land was not safe from further development by white settlers. And so that herd of seven or 800 bison was uh, shipped off to a willing buyer who was the Canadian government. And so these North American Plains bison, which originated on the Rocky Mountain front, spent 30 or 40 years in the Flathead Valley, eventually went up to Elk Island National Park in Canada, where they bided their time for about a century. And about a century after they went up there, so they went up there around 1907. About a century later, they started to be returned to reservations in the United States and have become the seeds for bison recovery in the United States. It's estimated that four out of every five bison in conservation herds came from those bison that were at Elk Island National Park in Canada. So the numbers now are about 30,000 bison in conservation herds and about 370,000 bison on bison ranches. Uh, there's a whole other story there about how bison ended up on bison ranches, but the total number of Plains bison now is around 400,000, maybe a little bit more than 400,000, uh, with 30,000 of them in conservation herds and the vast majority of them on commercial operations on bison ranches. And 
you know, it sounds like there has been concern about the loss of genetic diversity of these animals and also uh, interbreeding with cows. Why have bison conservationists been so focused on the animal's genetics and, and what issues has that created? Yeah, so this is a really interesting wrinkle in the bison story, which I deal with in the book here. So those 30,000 in conservation herds, they were held up as um, the, the, the most bison-ish of the bison, the purest of the bison. And the rest of them, everybody knew that they were on bison ranches because cattle ranchers had seen bison as an opportunity. And originally, the opportunity was to breed some of those bison genes into cattle. Uh, obviously, bison are tough. They can deal with droughts. They can deal with winter storms. They can uh, give birth without help. They uh, just do really well in very harsh environments. And so, a lot of a lot of cattle ranchers in the early 1900s saw this and wanted some of that bison genetics in their cattle herds. And remember, at this time, the overall bison population was very low. And so a little bit of hybridizing uh, ends up going a long way in terms of the population of the species. And that's essentially what happened, is that this interbreeding between bison and cattle infiltrated through most of the bison population. And at the moment, there's a bit of a battle going on to determine how much of the bison population, whether it's all of the bison population or whether it's just a high percentage of the bison population. But those 370,000 or so bison on bison ranches, it's recognized and accepted that all of those have some cattle genes in them. And what does that do? Well, it makes the bison less fully bison. It still looks like a bison. It still mostly acts like a bison. But genetically speaking, it's not fully a bison. And that can have some detrimental effect on the weight of the animal. They tend not to grow uh, so big. And allegedly, it can have a little bit of an impact on its resilience to climate, its resilience to uh, very harsh winters or um, very hot summers. And so it doesn't quite have that toughness that a genetically pure bison would have. And so there's a debate here about whether this is a terrible loss and whether we need to fight back against that uh, genetic contamination or whether that's just the world that we live in and it's what we have to accept as the future of the plains bison. I think this is a very live debate, actually. Things are changing all the time. There's been scientific studies since I published the book that engage with this debate. And, and I think it's a question that perhaps uh, maybe not all of us have spent time wrestling with it, but thinking about how important is the original genetic makeup of an animal and how worried should we be about the types of impacts that humans can have on a wild animal's genome? Yeah, that's a, a fascinating question. And I'm curious, what, what have scientists learned um, even since you've, you've written your book? And where is that debate um, or the study of this question going? Yeah, so the bit that, that bore particularly on the story I told, so I, I mentioned Little Falcon Rogue who brought those original bison from Blackfeet country to the Flathead and then up to Canada. 
for a long time, it was thought that those bison were the only genetically pure ones left. Um, the Yellowstone bison, hopefully, were also genetically pure. And these bison that had made this giant circle north into Canada before starting to head back. Well, last year, 2022, in the spring, a paper was published by a couple of researchers at Texas A&M University, which suggested that every single bison, including the Yellowstone bison, and including these bison that little, little falcon robe had brought from Blackfeet territory, every bison had some cattle genes in them. And after I learned of that paper, I, I chatted to the two authors and I called up some of the people who really had a lot invested in the idea of bison purity. So there's an outfit in Montana called American Prairie who have about 800 bison. Uh, and they're on some lands in Eastern Montana. And when I was doing research for the book, they were holding out hope that their herds were genetically pure because they were connected to these bison that little falcon robe had brought across the Rockies. After that paper came out, they were faced with the prospect that maybe their bison were not genetically pure. And the answer I got from both them and from other people interested in bison genetic purity is we, we have to play the hand we've got. If this is what bison are like, they're still a mighty impressive animal. They still survived the Pleistocene extinctions, which a lot of large animals didn't. They're still resilient. They're still iconic. They still offer tremendous ecosystem services. And so we've got to accept what we now have and, and move on. And so this is, this is an interesting, uh, interesting conservation, um, dilemma, you know, do you fight this or do you accept it? Uh, and I think the answer is it, it's a philosophical question, I guess, uh, with a little ecological element to it. And I think the answers are still kind of evolving as to what the future conservation of the bison is going to look like. Yeah. And you mentioned that that bison do some important things for the ecosystems they're in, um, in the Great Plains. Do you mind sharing what those are? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Bison are a classic ecosystem engineer. And probably the first thing that comes to mind when you think of bison is, well, they're grazing. So yes, they're, they're grazing and they're grazing and they're moving. And so they graze one area down and then move to another area. And through that movement, they create a patchy mosaic of vegetation. So you can imagine putting a herd of cattle in a field with a fence around it. Uh, you get after a period of time, the field is just grazed down to a particular height. But these bison are grazing and moving, and so they create this patchiness. What they also do is they change the shape and texture of the soil. So they do this with their hooves, and they do it with their backs because they spend a lot of time rolling in the dust. And when bison roll in the dust, they create a little indentation. That indentation, when it rains, becomes a little ephemeral pool. And that little pool sponsors insect diversity, and that insect diversity sponsors bird diversity. And so bison have, that rather like the wolf in Yellowstone, this cascade of effects follow down from the impact of bison on the landscape. I spoke to someone from American Prairie 
who told me they'd flown over some of the prairie that they manage in a light aircraft. And they could look down and they could see these deep green circles with a few bison bones in the middle of them. And these circles are where the bison had died. And as that carcass had decomposed, it had provided this nutrient shot to the landscape. And so by providing these nutrients, these bison helped create these little refugia for insects and other wildlife species. And so there's really a lot of a lot of stuff they do just through the way they graze, the shape of their mouths, the shape of the hooves, their habits. There's an interesting feature of bison compared to cattle with creeks. Bison don't like cooling off in a creek. It's not something they do compared to cattle who like nothing better on a hot day than to go stand in a creek and hang out there. The bison will go to a creek to drink and it'll move on. And of course, if you do that, you're not damaging the vegetation around the creek. You're not grazing the banks of the creek down to nothing. And so scientists are finding that having bison around creeks allows for a much healthier creek than if cattle are allowed just to wallow in a creek and stay there um, for days on end. So really, there's, it's another example of a, of a cascading effect. It's, it's not a predation effect like the wolf. Um, but there is a, an engineering that the bison does on a landscape that really boosts the biodiversity on that landscape. Yeah, there are so many ties between the bison and other animals. Your book also takes a look at river ecosystems. What are some of the animals there that have been making a comeback? And maybe first off, what, what put those animals at risk and, and how have they been recovering? So I've always had a fascination with salmon. I, when I was in college, I started going to Alaska and started uh, working in the, in the salmon industry in various respects on fishing boats and in fish factories. And salmon are challenged by four things, habitat, harvest, hatcheries, and hydropower. And if you take the last one of those, hydropower, that means dams. And Americans built an average of one large dam a day since the Declaration of Independence. Wow. It's an amazing statistic. And what those dams did is they basically made these rivers unavailable to fish that like to live their lives in the ocean and then come and spawn in rivers. Or even if you don't live your life in the ocean, if you're just a river fish that likes to migrate, those dams make your life impossible. And so my love and interest in salmon pretty quickly bumped into the uh, realization that salmon are going to be in trouble if rivers are dammed. And that's essentially what has been happening to salmon. Now, the book I wrote is a good news book. And the good news there is that some of these dams are starting to come out. And when you take a dam out, a fish regains that spawning habitat and fish are incredibly prolific. And so if you can just give a salmon its habitat back, if you can bring that dam down, and if you can ensure that upriver where that salmon wants to spawn, the surrounding habitat is suitable, you've literally got hundreds of millions of eggs being deposited every year into that system. And you've got the potential for a real rebound here. 
And so I charted that story of some dam removals, uh, particularly the ones on the Elwar River on the Olympic Peninsula. In just Washington to, State. In Washington State, yeah. Just to really see how dramatic that recovery could be. And it's really, it's very exciting to see what's going on. Yeah. How did support build for the removal of uh, that dam? So dams are interesting things. They they serve purposes when they're built, and sometimes those purposes then become obsolete. And so on the Elwar River there, the original purpose was hydropower. So those dams were providing power to lumber mills that were operating at the mouth of the Elwar at Port Angeles there. And these days, that power is being provided from other sources. So the dam is not providing its original purpose anymore. There's another factor that is relevant. Dams have to be licensed. And as they get old, uh, to get relicensed, they have to be safe and they have to be shown not to be damaging the ecosystem. And in the Elwha, what was becoming increasingly obvious is that these dams were damaging the ecosystem. They were devastating the salmon runs and the trout runs, they weren't serving that purpose anymore of providing hydropower. And they were becoming increasingly dangerous. The lower Elwar Klalam Reservation is at, right at the mouth of the Elwar River. And so these factors conspired to make these dams perfect choices for dam removal. And in some cases, it's going to be cheaper to actually remove a dam than it is to upgrade it, to make it safe, and to make its ecosystem effects uh, somewhat more tolerable. So you look at the, if you're running a dam, if you're owning it and running it, you look at the economics and you say, hey, I'd rather this thing comes out and we're done with it once and for all. And that's what happened on the LWA. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And so what happens in an ecosystem once a dam is removed? Well, in the Elwha, the first thing that happened is the fish literally swam through the rubble of the dam within weeks. Within it's, weeks, wow. It's, it's astonishing. Uh, the The salmon on the Elwha would always show up at the dam every year, and you could see them milling around at the base. And they're essentially, I mean, I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but they're, they're saying, I feel like I should be moving upriver here, but I see that I can't. Uh, so when that dam came down, they literally started moving through within weeks. Um, so there's five Pacific salmon species, and the Elwha is one of the rivers on the west coast that hosts all five of those species. And the coho salmon have started to spawn above the dam site, and the Chinook salmon are spawning above the dam site. And the coho, because the river is regaining its health, so instead of having a giant reservoir full of silt and sort of slow-moving stagnant water, you have a cascading creek bubbling with oxygen, uh, with pools and riffles and a diversity of habitat. Um, that's great for fish. It's great for insect diversity. Those salmon fry and then salmon smolts, which are two early life stages of the salmon, they have much more food to feed on. And it turns out that these coho, they're heading back out to the ocean at twice the size they were when they used to 
in the very low reaches of the river that they could still access before the dams came out. The coho today are twice the size of the coho that were spawning in that very depleted short stretch of river below the dams. And so you get these fabulous returns uh, pretty quickly. I mean, it's not instant because dams are loaded up with silt behind them. And so when you take a dam out, that silt floods down the river. First, it destroys spawning habitat. It just chokes it off with all that silt. But over the years, as that silt gets washed out into the ocean, that spawning habitat becomes available again. And so there's some really interesting monitoring on the Elwar of how these species are uh, starting to come back, how the salmon are spawning higher and higher up in the river above the dams and how the numbers are building year by year. So it's it's a, really a heck of a story to watch unfold. Yeah. Do you have a sense of the prospects for dam removals uh, across the Western U.S. where so many rivers have been dammed moving forward? So it's, it's an interesting uh, case to look at because a lot of dams are coming out because of this relicensing uh, requirements. Um, relicensing happens every 50 years. And so a lot of dams are getting to that age where these relicensing questions are being asked. The two dams that came out of the Elwar River up till now have been the largest two dams removed in the US. But that's as we speak, being superseded by four Klamath River dams that are coming out, and they will that project will take over the mantle as the biggest dam removal project in the United States. So this is good news. Uh, the number of dams coming out is going up every year. There are some limits, though. Um, the Columbia River dams are these giant dams uh, across the Columbia. And the Snake River dams are also big dams uh, on an upper fork there at the Columbia branches into the Snake. Um, there are movements to remove the Snake River dams. I don't think anybody at this point is talking about removing Columbia River dams. Um, it does appear like there are some limits as to exactly how many of these dams can ultimately come out. But even in cases where you cannot remove a dam, you can take action to make fish, fish passage easier. You can build bypass channels, for example, and on some rivers in Maine, the Penobscot River, for example, bypass channels have been built around dams, which can be almost as helpful to fish as removing a dam in the first place. And there's an increasing recognition that uh, fish play a role in the economics of a region, in the culture of a region. They can play essential roles for the indigenous people in a particular area. The Klamath dams are coming out uh, essentially because tribes in the area have for a long time demanded it. And so the more we appreciate the different roles that fish play and the different roles migratory fish play, the more the argument for either taking out dams or building bypass channels that actually work, um, the more those arguments uh, gain in significance. So I think the prospects are good. I think uh, those who advocate for fish have to keep on pushing here. Uh, it's a, it's a, a tough task. And um, in some cases, there's worries about flooding. Uh, but 
in in other cases such as in the Elwar, the the reasons to keep the dam in just diminish to such an extent that it just makes no sense anymore and those dams uh, eventually do come out in talking about river ecosystems you also mentioned how beavers do their own engineering um can you share about uh, how beavers seem to have found a better way to to dam rivers and in ways that actually benefit ecosystems yeah so you can't talk about dams without talking about beavers and uh i first got uh clued into this actually near where i live here again in in missoula montana the milltown dam was taken out uh again that was a case of a dam that was dangerous it wasn't serving its original purpose of generating electricity and the sediments behind it had some nasty stuff in them that threatened groundwater in the area so the dam comes out and then pretty soon after it comes out once you start to replant vegetation in that old reservoir uh in that muddy um remnants of what was backed up behind the dam once you start to plant vegetation and the channels start to meander and the creeks start to uh resume their kind of seasonal flows pretty soon beavers show up and so ironically you start to get dams again <laughs> of course they're not cement and metal uh they're made out of mud and sticks and what those beaver dams do is they add just like the bison on the prairie they add complexity to the system they add edges to the water so instead of having a channel a straight channel or a, a giant uh egg-shaped reservoir you have a braided cascade with lots of dead ends and nooks and curves and twists and turns you have different depths of water uh, you have warmer shallows you have deeper pools when a beaver topples a tree it can create a, a semi uh permanent um, buffer to flow of water so you get this incredible complexity and the complexity is good habitat it's good habitat for fish it's good habitat for insects it's good habitat for other mammals um, like otters for example uh, and voles and so beavers are the world's experts at restoring rivers and so you always got to be careful when you say we don't want dams on rivers you do want dams you want the right kind of dams you want beaver dams and um, not only do these beaver dams provide these fantastic services for an ecosystem they also provide fantastic services for the humans that live around those beaver dams um, those beaver dams provide some flood control there was a study in England where the addition of one beaver pair on this drainage reduced flood flows by 30 percent so instead of water pouring straight out of a creek and then flooding the town at the mouth of the river 30 percent of that water is kept up in that drainage where those two beavers were that's just two beavers oh um, wow that's quite an impact so incredible uh flood protection they also by holding that water on the landscape those beaver dams help recharge groundwater and under the impacts of climate change what you really need to be doing is keeping that water up where it falls where the rain falls for as long as you possibly can you really don't want it 
heading out to the ocean at its first opportunity. And so those beaver dams keep that water up in, in the upper valleys and creeks that helps recharge groundwater. When there are fires caused by climate change, those beaver dams can help filter out some of the excess nutrients that those fires dump into the river with all that ash and burned vegetation. And those beaver dams can also provide fire breaks because you get a soggy patch in the middle of what would otherwise be a very dry valley. So there is so much that these beavers are doing, not just for the ecosystem, but also for the humans that live on and around that ecosystem. Uh, beavers really, they, their image has turned around in the last two decades from being some sort of rodent pest that floods things that you want kept dry. Uh, it's turned around from that negative view to a much more positive one about helping harden the landscape against climate change, helping save money, uh, and helping create a more biodiverse system. And so we're, we're lucky to be living in this uh, beaver renaissance time where these uh, toothy rodents are starting to get appreciated for what they do. And it sounds like people are starting to learn from them about better ways to manage ecosystems. Um, how what What lessons have humans, researchers, people working in conservation learned from beavers? Yeah, I th this is one of the things I tr was pondering as I was researching beavers and writing up those chapters. I, I was thinking the beaver is really becoming a teacher here. Uh, we are starting to, if you like, apprentice ourselves to the beaver. And um, it's worth noting that that idea that the animal is a teacher is an idea that is all over indigenous worldviews. Um, from, from the start, it, it's been obvious um, in indigenous context that you look and see how animals do something. They've survived millions of years on the landscape doing what they do. So maybe we can learn something from them. And in beavers, I think that is that attitude is starting to be adopted in uh, non-indigenous communities, uh, looking at beavers, seeing how they can help. I went out on the landscape with a PhD student who was studying how beaver dams change hydrology in a depleted and degraded meadow. And so he and some assistants had built some fake beaver dams. And these things have a name. They're called beaver dam analogs. And they're becoming a tool in habitat restoration across um, the, the West, the arid West. And so he built some beaver dam analogs and was taking measurements how those dams were changing the hydrology of that little basin in which they were in. He'd also tagged several hundred fish and was tracking how those dams impacted the movement of fish up and down river. Because beaver dams are not like giant cement barriers. Uh, they are in, in certain states of their building and in states of their decay, they're very permeable and small fish can move through them. And so he was tracking how those dams impact fish movement. Uh, other parts of the study was tracking the carbon that those dams store and other parts of the study was tracking the methane that the soggier landscape emits. And so there was a real learning process going on here where 
the the it was recognized that the beaver dam was providing vital functions and the scientist was trying to catalog exactly what those functions were and to use that information to help figure out how effectively you can restore a system not just with beavers but with in places where there aren't beavers with these beaver dam analogs so it was really fascinating to see that that learning taking place at the phd level uh with this guy from new jersey who was out there in his wellington boots plodding around with measuring devices it was fascinating uh, you also spent some time in the forest with people who are working on owl conservation what are some of the dilemmas that uh, conservationists and agencies come up against when they're trying to help populations make a comeback? Yeah, so this story was one of the most heart-wrenching in the whole book. Um, I've always loved the idea of northern spotted owls. I haven't seen any in my life, but I was in school in Oregon, and while I was there, there was this massive debate about these northern spotted owls, which were imperiled first by habitat loss, and now by the arrival of a related owl, the barred owl, which has made its way into northern spotted owl habitat and is essentially out-competing the northern spotted owl. And it's pushing it off the landscape, sometimes killing it, uh, but it's taking over the prime nesting sites. And one northern spotted owl biologist described their preferred species as currently circling the drain. In other words, this, these northern spotted owls are really in deep, deep trouble, thanks to barred owls. So is there a solution to this? I joined some people who were trying out a solution, and the experiment was to suppress the barred owl populations, to give the northern spotted owls a little more breathing space, a little more room to live their lives unharassed, uh, unmolested by these barred owls. And suppress is the word you use when you're talking politely about it, but essentially it is to kill these barred owls, to shoot them out of trees with shotguns. And if you can shoot enough of the barred owls out of the trees, you give the spotted owls their territory back. And this experiment, which had run for five years, and I showed up right at the end of the experiment, this experiment showed that you can give northern spotted owls a chance by suppressing the barred owl population. So there's there's lots to think about ethically there, killing one owl species to save the other species. There's also things to think about practically here. Um, so this was an experiment that shows particular sections of forest where they they did this control for five years. But then what's going to happen after that five years? You can't just give up. You've got to keep going because those barred owls are keeping on showing up. They're keeping on expanding their habitat. And so there's ethical issues, there's practical issues, there's economic issues. It's a really tricky, tricky case and uh, hard to see your way through it. Have, um, have people in those areas decided what they will do yet or are they still working to make a decision? As far as I know, the decision process is still taking place. And this was much of the frustration of the uh, the technician who I went out on the forest with. Uh, she felt like she'd given five years of her life to run this experiment. And of course, the moment you stop, the moment you stop suppressing, the barred owls start coming back. 
Um, and so obviously this is a very tricky decision from a policy perspective because you're you're committing yourself to uh, a long-term investment of time and resources. You're committing yourself to a very controversial course of action that uh, many people are not going to be happy about. And um, if you look 100 or 200 years down the road, you have to start asking yourself, well, is, is the long-term prospects here for the spotted owl, are they something realistically good enough that we should go down this path? Um, but then, you know, to not go down the path is to throw up your hands and say, all right, we give up and you watch Northern Spotted Owl go extinct. And that too is a hard price to pay. So um, as I understand it, that there's no uh, Forest Service policy yet determined on this. Uh, I think it's still sort of in flux. And uh, honestly, even though I'm an ethicist in my day job, it, it's a very, very difficult decision, I think, to make. Yeah, that's incredibly tricky. And it's it's not just owls that are um, subject to these intensive conservation management projects. Uh, you describe a forest in England. Um, so England, it sounds like, has really lost a lot of biodiversity and where people are trying to create sort of revived forest ecosystems. Do you mind sharing about that a bit and what some of the reflections you had on seeing these these in, uh, very intense attempts? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I found a couple of, it, it was forest. It was funny, forest was the uh, the linking thread here, but a couple of species in forest that needed very heavy management. I mean, the owl, obviously, very heavy management. But in southeastern England, I went into this oak forest outside of Canterbury. So from just outside town, you can look down to Canterbury and you can see the spires of the cathedral. And it's this classic English landscape with hedgerows and small woods and sheep and a few cattle. But there's this fairly large patch of forest of a couple of thousand acres. And the Kent Wildlife Trust has decided to bring back European bison into that forest. And this is the first restoration of wild bison, the first wild bison in England for 30,000 years. Now, there, there have been bison in zoos and there have been bison in little zoo parks, but all of those are essentially, they're uh, fenced and fed and managed and they're not living the life of a bison but these bison that have been brought back into a place called Bleen Woods outside of Canterbury they are living wild they are fending for themselves they're giving birth uh, they are feeding themselves and surviving as wild bison now it's not this is not the great plains of North America and so there is not an endless space for these bison to roam in and so there is quite a bit of control around the edges of where these bison are living so very uh curiously there's two fences around the perimeter of this wood one is an electric fence that stands about three and a half feet high and that's all you need to keep the bison in in this wood outside the electric fence is a seven foot high chain link fence with barbed wire on the top and that fence is to keep people out and the reason you need that taller fence to keep people out is that 
bison, having been absent from the UK for 30,000 years, don't have a place in UK law except as a dangerous wild animal. So these bison, which were originally native to this landscape, are now categorized as a dangerous wild animal. It's as if you had a pet tiger or a pet boa constrictor. You would have to keep the public safe from that pet tiger. So the Kent Wildlife Trust is compelled to keep these bison safe from the British public. And they're doing that with this seven foot high tall chain link fence with barbed wire on the top. And so there's this odd paradox here. These are wild bison in the sense they're fending for themselves and they're on a big enough landscape that they can survive. There's enough food for them. There's enough uh, land for them to practice their normal behaviors. But there is a fence because that's what British law currently demands. Every person on the project I spoke to wants that British law to change because it is so... uh, Anachronous. It doesn't really reflect the fact that this is a native species back on the landscape. But for now, they they have the fence. They spoke about the possibility of the fence coming down and the bison wearing satellite guided shock collars at some point in the future. So if the bison starts to leave that area, it gets a little buzz from the shock collar and and turns back inside the area. So that's an interesting idea. Um, but it does raise this question of how free can an animal be on a landscape where there's a lot of people that's a question that came up with with many of the species in the book actually so you you have a restoration but can you restore something to be totally free and moving entirely of its own devices or do you have to keep a little bit of a a thumb on the scale and just manage it uh in a way that keeps everybody happy and that's certainly what's happening with those european bison in kent at the moment so the last ecosystem that your book gets into is oceans. Um, you share about whales and otters and other creatures there. Um, can you share in terms of ocean recoveries, what is going on with whales? Yeah, so I was focused on one particular species, uh, the humpback whale. Talked to some people about sperm whales as well, which was interesting. Uh, but the humpback whale was the most striking one. Humpback whales got free from the persecution of whaling in the 1960s. Uh, There was an International Whaling Commission ban on their hunting. And then in the 1980s, there was a broader ban that covered all whale species and commercial whaling from the International Whaling Commission again. Now, after those bans were put in place, humpback whales rebounded immediately so we've mentioned already how bison can do really well if you if you leave them alone or fish species can do really well well it's whales can join that crowd of species that if you leave them alone if you let them breed they can recover really well and so humpback whales around the world there are 14 different populations and and a population here means an identifiable group of whales that live in one spot, maybe breed in another spot and migrate between where they breed and where they eat. There's 14 different populations, 11 of them. 11 of those 14 are either completely recovered or getting very close to recovered. Uh, 95% is where the humpback whale population is estimated to be now 
relative to where it was before there was any whaling. So having been down at about 5 or 10% of pre-whaling populations, they're now back up to about 95% of where they were pre-whaling. So it's, a, it's an incredible recovery. People love whales. And so these whales have created uh, economic boosts to a lot of coastal towns through whale watching. And whales also, like those uh, beavers or like those bison, provide services to the system. And so the return of whales is is something that uh, can be welcomed from a social point of view and also from an ecological point of view. And it's something that uh, I think we can all be very excited about and, and chalk up as a success with a, with a few little caveats here, which you know maybe we should mention. Climate change is uh, not doing whales a favor. It's moving their food sources and making life much harder for them. So it's not clear that these recoveries uh, are going to continue the way they have gone, but at least there's room for a little bit of hope here and a bit of optimism. And it strikes me in what you share in the book that um, with the resurgence of whales means that there are good effects for ocean ecosystems that researchers are still still working to learn about. Um, yeah, so you know it, it's kind of fascinating to read about how scientists are studying nutrient levels in whale poop and and trying to figure out exactly what that does for ecosystems. Yeah, that was the piece that seemed so interesting to me. So I, I did a lot of the whale research I did was um, in Southeast Alaska. And I was staying very close to the Mendenhall Glacier. And the Mendenhall Glacier is retreating, uh, like most glaciers in, in many parts of the world. And glaciers are wonderful bits of machinery for putting nutrients into the ocean. You can imagine they're grinding up rocks and they're sending that uh, glacial till down the river into the ocean. That's a nutrient boost. And as those glaciers start to melt, initially they they increase their nutrient output, but the further up the valley they disappear and the more they dry out and eventually they disappear entirely, that nutrient output diminishes. And so the prospect for nutrient load in some of these coastal areas, uh, those prospects are looking bleak as glaciers melt. Whales provide their own different kind of nutrient boost. And they provide that boost by feeding in one place and then pooping in another. And so all the nutrients in that feed, some of them go to pack on blubber and muscle in the whale, but a lot of them end up going into the ocean in a different spot. And so there's this fascinating question whether whale recovery can help pick up um, a fraction of, and, and let's not pretend at all that that's going to replace what other nutrient loss we're getting from these systems, but whale recovery might be able to replace a fraction of the nutrient loss by moving nutrients in their feed from uh, where they spend time on their summer feeding grounds or winter feeding grounds, and then where they go to breed. So there's this really interesting chemical uh, physical chemical impact of whale recovery that scientists are starting to study right now. Yeah. yeah and along with whales and ocean ecosystems, you also um, looked at the impact of otters. What, what um, steps 
well, how have otters recovered and, and what are the ways that people are seeing ecosystems rebound because of their, their role? Yeah, so otters are another interesting one, and and if you're if you're studying whales off off a coast, you you might find yourself studying otters as well because they're in some places they're um, they're in in the same sorts of environments. Um, otter populations were reduced down to about one percent of their original numbers, uh, all up the Pacific coast of North America and around the Aleutian Islands and over to Russia and Japan. They reduced about 1% because of their fur. I mean, that, should, that probably comes as no surprise to anybody. Um, there was a ban on hunting them put in place in the 1910s. It was actually a ban on fur seals that included otters as well. And those otters started to come back. Now, otters aren't that great at returning themselves to every habitat they were originally in. And the reason for this is... They don't like crossing very long, deep channels. Um, they they are hungry little creatures. They need to eat to stay warm. And if you present them with a long, deep channel where they can't dive and grab a clam or eat a crab on the way over, they're going to say, no, I'm staying put. So though those otters started to bounce back, they had to have a little helping hand, which meant a reintroduction, otters being moved from where they were doing well and being put in areas where they weren't doing so well. And those otters are starting to get back. They're, they're still less than half of what the original otter populations were, but they're in many areas in the Pacific, they're doing quite well. Now, the ecosystem service the otters provide is a very interesting one. Otters eat sea urchins, and they eat a lot of them. And by eating a lot of sea urchins, otters help kelp forests to bounce back because sea urchins eat kelp. And if you don't have any otters preying on the sea urchins, the urchins will destroy a kelp forest. So bring the otters back. The otters have an impact on the urchins, and that has an impact on the kelp forest. And the kelp forest is amazing habitat. It's amazing habitat for fish. It's amazing as a buffering habitat that diffuses the movement of ocean swells. Uh, it protects shoreline where you have kelp forests. And the other kind of ace up the sleeve here with kelp is that kelp forests help suck carbon out of the nearshore environment. And so these otter recoveries, ultimately, they're helping fisheries, they're helping habitat, but they're also helping with climate change because these kelp forests suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And there was one study done, if every part of original otter habitat was repopulated with otters. If you could bring them back everywhere they originally were up the Pacific coast, and if by bringing them back, you allowed that kelp forest to regenerate, then that has the potential to sequester the emissions of 5 million cars a year. And th those numbers are a little loose because there's there's a little bit of uncertainty with how much of the carbon that gets absorbed into that kelp, how much of it ends up getting sequestered. There's obviously complicated matters there about, well, where does this kelp end up when it dies? Um, but the upper bound of the estimate here was that uh, that could sequester as much as the emissions of 5 million cars per year. And uh, 
you know, it's it's not just a single win, it's a multiple win here because you also get the habitat for fish spawning and, and fish recovery provided by otters. And you also get these very cute, charismatic creatures bobbing around in the ocean. So there's really a lot of benefits that these otters can provide as they recover. What are some of the things that you learned from indigenous people in Alaska about how humans can interact with these creatures in oceans? Well, it struck me that that what was happening up here with the whales and with the otters was quite similar to what I described with the beavers, because the closer you look at what these whales are doing by moving nutrients, so those nutrients provide health to the ocean and they boost phytoplankton, those phytoplankton suck carbon. And with the otters and the kelp, what you're finding is creatures just by being who they are, they're doing things that are really advantageous. And so this idea of learning from, and even with the otters and the whales, I was thinking about partnering with, thinking of those animals as allies sort of on the same team, uh, fighting the same battles, you know, wanting to live wanting to live their lives and wanting to live their lives in a healthy environment. Um, these ideas of partnership and learning, uh, allyship, those are obviously attitudes that are there are plenty in indigenous cultures. And so just learning how to adopt those different sorts of attitudes. And from an ethical point of view, uh, it does require a shift in ethics here, not just to think of the animal as well, obviously not something purely to exploit. Hopefully those days of exploiting whales and sea otters are gone. But then also not just thinking of the animal as something that's cute to look at or a little economic boost to the region from ecotourism, but instead to look at the animal through a much richer and deeper ethical lens where you think of it as a, as a kin, uh, as a creature related to us that's, that's doing something that's favorable to us and you know we should we should watch it do that and watch it do it well and and do what we can to help it do well and if it does well we do well um i think those are real ethical lessons in this situation that definitely resonate with uh the worldviews of, of indigenous people with sea otters there's a there's another sort of wrinkle another layer that i could add here sea otters eat urchins but they also eat clams and crabs and a lot of shellfish that a lot of coastal communities like to eat. And so there is a question here about whether in some areas, sea otter populations can be controlled so that the shellfish populations are not completely decimated by the sea otters. There's a, a balancing here. There's a complicated balancing a question about how to cohabit so that you get the benefits of the kelp forests, but you don't get a complete loss of your shellfish. And this is a wisdom that indigenous people have figured out over the millennia uh, through the hunting of sea otters. And um, in uh, the United States, only indigenous people currently are allowed to hunt sea otters. And they have a system of otter management that allows for kelp forests and also allows for shellfish harvests. And so there's some learning to be done there too about what exactly in the long term is going to be the appropriate relationship with an animal like a sea otter, which 
uh, comes with a multitude of benefits and the occasional cost. And so working out the fine line there is is obviously a very difficult challenge, but one that if species are going to recover, uh, we have to figure out exactly where that line gets drawn. I appreciate the philosophical insight that your book brings to these big questions around animal conservation. So I think to end, I want to ask you uh, kind of a big question. What does coexisting with wildlife mean for humans and how does it impact who we are and what our societies become? That is a big question. <laughs> and I will I will flail around and, and try and say some things that, that are, are helpful to it. Um, so one of the when we started talking we were talking about the wolf and one of the things that came up is this idea that well the wolf is the creature of the wild and we are uh creatures of the civilized and the domestic what i learned by the end of the book is that that's just the wrong attitude um i even started to think towards the end of the book that the word the word wildlife is the wrong word because it suggest from the get-go that there's creatures that occupy this other realm that is not our realm. And as long as they stay in that other realm, things are good. And the moment they cross over into our realm, things get complicated. Well, I'd like to see that attitude moderate a little bit. Yes, there are complications when sea otters are eating your shellfish or wolves are eating uh, a calf or so. Yes, there are complications. But those complications, we have a toolbox today that helps us deal with some of those complications. We have better ways to cohabit with wolves. We have better ways to see exactly how much impact those wolves are and are not having. And just to drop a little statistic in here, uh, I was writing something recently about wolf depredation of cattle in Montana. And it turns out that uh, Montana Board of Livestock figures, so these are official state figures, confirm 35 cattle kills or losses out of a cattle population of 2.2 million in Montana. And so if you want to do the percentage there, that is 0.0016% of the cattle herd in Montana are killed annually by wolves. At least that was the case in 2022. So you can look at that number and you can say, okay, that is actually not a massive number. This is this is not representing the decimation of the livestock industry in Montana. So we have the details, we have the stats to know exactly what these impacts are now. And so we can work on lessening those impacts and and certainly fairly compensating those people who do have to suffer the inconvenience of an animal return. But also recognizing the benefits of that animal return, the ecological benefits, the social benefits, the cultural benefits. And so breaking down this big divide, the wild versus the civilized, the human versus the non-human, that was really an abiding lesson for me is that we're animals and being surrounded by them is perhaps the way things have always been and, and the way things perhaps should be because it's rewarding to see animals. It's enlivening to uh, know that those animals are around us. I mean, here in Montana, we're always talking about 
the animals that we have. And we, we all feel very lucky to have these animals around us. And so I think for me, at least, one of the abiding things here is to get over this separation between humans and animals, to figure out cohabitation in ways that are socially just, economically just, uh, and in ways that are enlivening for people. And to just enjoy, like we enjoy the birds in our garden or the butterflies uh, flitting around outside on a summer's day like they are today, uh, think about broadening that idea and enjoying the presence of all kinds of animals uh, and letting them letting them be around us and, and letting us not flinch and, and become nervous at them, but finding ways to make it work for them and make it work for us. That, that's really where I, I found myself going towards the end of this book. I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Christopher. Yep, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for the interview. If you'd like to learn more about Christopher Preston and his book, Tenacious Beasts, we've linked to his website at scienceforthepeople.ca. On our page, you'll also find links to our show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe, or leave a review. And if you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show by donating through our Patreon page. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>